Hello and welcome to episode two of The Metaphor. I'm Sam Livingston Gray and I am no, not awake. No, no, I am awake yet. Sam, we've talked about this. The name of the show is Greater Than Code. Everyone was very quick to correct me last week and now I, Coraline Ida Emke, have to play the role of corrector to you. Is that how it's going to be today? I guess that is how it's going to be. And I guess it's just as well that that's not the name because there are greater than four of us here. That's true. I'm really excited about, we have a brand new panelist today, Astrid County. Hi, I'm super excited to be here. And we also have uh, David Brady. Good morning. And I'm excited to second what Jessica said last week, which is that Jay Bobo from Columbus is better at me, better at me than everything. (laughs) For example, introducing himself on the show. Good afternoon. I'm here in lovely central Ohio eating the world's best chicken wrap right now. And I'm handing this off to Jessica Kerr. Good morning. I'm happy to be on Greater Than Code again. And I am even happier because we have one of my favorite programmers in the whole world as a guest today. You might know him by his silky smooth voice or possibly by his amazing trademarked hair. But if you don't already know him, you should check out Ruby Tapas, where Chef Avdi Grimm serves up short videos twice a week that will teach you something new and interesting about programming. Avdi, what's interesting today? That's a high bar. Um, you all are interesting. Let's all, let's just talk about you today. Aw, <laughs> <Aww>, group hug. <laughs> enough about you. Let's talk about us. <laughs> so, Avdi, do you have any questions for us? Oh, I forgot my, my prep sheet. Man, we're going to have to reschedule this whole show. Crazy idea. Let's do one where we focus on the guest. What? No, that would be no fun at all. I'll just describe the view out my window. How about that? Yeah, Avdi, where do you live today? Same place I've been living for the past, uh, I don't know, what, a year and a half now? The uh, beautiful foothills of the Smoky Mountains in eastern Tennessee. Is that a dream come true? Yes, it is. Many years in planning and execution. So, Avdi, in the intro, we mentioned Ruby Tapas. Do you want to describe exactly what Ruby Tapas is for those who are not in the know? Ruby Tapas is my screencast series. As the name suggests, it's primarily focused on Ruby, but it's really more about object-oriented design and thinking about code and refactoring and testing and all kinds of stuff around just coding more effectively. And what uh, maybe sets it apart a little bit is that it is composed of very frequent, very short episodes. So I shoot for about five minutes per episode, put out two of them a week. And I've been doing that for, uh, I don't know, like four years now. Is that part of how you achieved your dream of living in the Smoky Mountains? Yeah, it certainly helped me uh, achieve my level of location independence, among other things. So it's, uh, as I understand it, Avdi, it's not just you on Ruby Tapas, right? You have a whole production crew now? No, I'm, I'm the only full-timer, but I do have some other people that work with me. I've been gradually delegating more and more of it. So um, as a matter of fact, for the past several of it, not, not more than several, um, for a while now, those who watch the show may be surprised to learn that they actually haven't been watching me typing for a lot of the episodes. That has been my uh, station chef, Federico Yacchetti, who just recently debuted with his first full episode. Uh, he did an, did an episode on Pessimize. That was, uh, I think, 447 that just came out. So, yeah, we've got him and and uh, I've got an editor that I work with. And Mandy here helps me with support and a whole lot of other stuff. And I've even got my dad working on some stuff. He's doing like copy editing and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's a team effort. It's pretty amazing that you have someone to do the typing for you because um, I got approached to do a series of, of like videos for a company that specializes in that sort of thing. And the thing that terrified me the most was like showing the world just how bad I am at typing. I actually love that when people do that because it makes me feel better 
about how bad I am at typing. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. I spent all this time when I was making a Pluralsight course chopping out all my little backspaces. Oh, my gosh. Don't then, do that. And then speeding it up so it looked really fast and smooth. <laughs> I was chatting with Gary Bernhardt about this the other day, and we were talking about the fact that part of what we do is accidentally convince the world that we're superhuman because, you know, his process involves practicing over and over and over and over again until he can execute perfectly. My process, even before I had somebody typing for me, involved very careful editing, very careful reshooting until a take is perfect. And then, you know, one of the distinctive things about the way I, I do the show is I edit the video to match the the voiceover and not vice versa. So a lot of times you're seeing code going a whole lot faster than I am capable of, of physically typing. Because the thing is, if somebody's talking about code, people are capable of watching code being written at a much faster pace than they're, they're capable of, yeah. of writing it. If I'm explaining what I'm doing and showing you some code that's in, in fast motion, you can still pick up what's going on. So I try not to waste people's time, but as a result of that, people watch the show and they think, you know, good Lord, this person is like the flash of keyboard use. <laughs> I was talking to Gary about that. We were talking about maybe we should just like, you know, we should each make a a, a video that's just like highlighting exactly how we actually type, um, <laughs> which spoiler alert, I actually only learned to touch type in the last few years. Um, wow. I spent most of oh, my yeah, programming that. career more wow. or less hunting and pecking. So, wow. yeah. Wow. I love that you have a ghost writer, but not the usual kind. You have the actual like seance hoaxing kind of like the, your ghost is actually moving the keys. <laughs> it's like lip syncing, except for fingers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. I'm going to get dinged uh, on that the next time I'm at an award show. <laughs> <laughs> so, Abdi, you have a really good point. I mean, we look like we are typing super fast, but actually we spent a ridiculous amount of hours typing that and retyping that and editing it to make this curated content exactly in order to uh, save people time. And it reminds me of this beautiful tweet storm by Sarah May from yesterday about how all the code that we see in books, that we see in these videos, it's like a staged house in a new subdivision where you go in and like you look at like the sample house and they have it all pretty and there's no clutter. There's just like beautiful sticks. Well, they're supposed to be beautiful. I never like those weird things that they put in there, but they're a gorgeous house with like only pretty things. And we think, oh, we could live here, but actually we couldn't live there. And our real code does have clutter in it. It has the messy complications of what we're actually doing. And can we get that place in between the staged house that's in our videos and the hoarded house of, oh my gosh, I must use every new tool and everything must be crammed in here. And I have to have all the features for feature parity for that old system I'm replacing, even though no one ever used them. Do you have any advice for people watching Ruby Tapas for not having those expectations of themselves that their code will be as beautiful and as smoothly typed as yours? Yeah, don't have those expectations. <laughs> <laughs> It's all a lie. I mean, fundamentally, I make videos that I would want to watch. After putting a lot of thought into the kind of thing that I would want to watch, I kind of decided that, you know, if I was paying for something, I would want to see ideas clearly illustrated without a lot of clutter around them, without a lot of backtracking or mistakes or, or you know, anything to distract away from the idea at hand. But that's the direct antithesis of the real world. 
that's nothing like what we really see. And occasionally I do episodes where the actual focus is here's a piece of real world code. Here's something that I actually wrote or that somebody else actually wrote. And let's talk about refactoring it or something like that. And I think that's where you start to see the real world sneak in. But it's that trade off between illustrating an idea clearly and showing you know our lives, our working lives as they actually are. And I stay most of the time I stay at one end of that spectrum. But uh, I can definitely see where people would get uh, the wrong impression from that. Yeah, that whole idea of finding the right example that's not so small that it looks completely contrived, but it's not so big that you can't possibly fit it is a really tricky one. It's a hard needle to thread. Yeah, I've kind of come to the conclusion that it's mostly impossible. I mean, I think every time I've tried to nail that, you know, there have been people that that say, yeah, but this is a really contrived example. You know, from time to time, I think about creating examples for like exercises and things like that for here's real world style code. And, you know, and now we're going to do an exercise on this real world style code. And after all these years of programming, I don't think I'm capable of intentionally writing real world code, if that makes any sense. You know, like as an example, I think it is so difficult. You can't even get yourself into the right mindset for it because it's not a mindset. It's distraction and it's deadlines and it's, you know, years of those things all mashed together into, you know, one screen full of code. Occasionally, I've thought it would be really interesting to assemble a sort of alternative intro to programming course that instead of starting with the absolute basics, you know, started with what people generally get thrown into in the real world, which is some, you know, horrendous hairball of accumulated code and start talking about like, okay, this is just the world that we live in. This is a thing that exists. Let's examine how we can poke at it and start making it exhibit new behavior and, and learn how code works from there. And I don't, I think that's probably a completely impractical idea, but I do think about it sometimes because it's, it's crazy how, you know, we have all these contrived examples and then, and then we get our first coding job and, and, you know, just we're bowled over by something that's completely foreign to what we've ever seen before. So what you just described is exactly what happened to me. Like the first job I had, I was like, yeah, I'm going to program. And then they're like, okay, go in and do this one thing. And then I open up the code and I'm like, oh my God, what is this? I don't know how to go through this. And so it took me like a day just to figure out what was going on before I could even change one thing. So I think it'd be kind of cool to see how a more experienced programmer would do that because that's something I never see. Yeah. You figured out what was going on in one day as a more experienced <laughs> programmer. I refused to touch the code for like weeks. So, um, Avdi, you did a great example of a real-world programming task that every single one of us faces in my favorite Ruby Tapas episode where you talked about the user model. Ah, uh, yes. That's been one of the most popular episodes of late, and it's the one where I talk about why I don't use user models anymore. It's probably popular because I talk about it so much. No doubt. <laughs> this is not a question, but, but I, I did uh, throw something in, in chat that our listeners uh, obviously can't can't see. And that is a site that I've come across called LiveCoding.tv, which is all types of fun. You know, you can watch other people kind of, you know, flip their tables and chairs over and throw things through windows, you know, as they tackle stuff. And it gets around that whole editing sort of problem. But I I, I definitely enjoy it. And it's something that I, I pull up quite often, you know, when I pair programming and mentoring, you know, with new folks who kind of – there's a question of, hey, so what does this look like real world? And I'm like, go to live coding and watch out. Yeah, I I, uh, I haven't watched anything there yet. I am aware of the site, though, and definitely check stuff like that out. I mean, there are, there's a lot of video out there of people working on the real thing. I've even done some occasion, like I've, I used to do a lot more remote pair programming. I've done some sessions. I think there are recordings of out there where I just um, sat down with someone remotely and we put it up on a 
a YouTube live thing and uh, and we worked on some code. All right. Well, I want to take a moment here to uh, remind everybody that uh, this episode of Greater Than Code is brought to you by you, the listeners. Uh, as a reminder, we do have a Patreon account, which we will link to in the show notes. Uh, and at the $10 a month level, we will randomly select names to dedicate a show to. And today, Trevor Bramble, you are it. Uh, he's at Trevor Bramble, B-R-A-M-B-L-E, on Twitter and works at Chef. Trevor, you rock, and I can attest to this personally, and uh, this episode is for you. Hi, Trevor. Thank you, Trevor. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks, Trevor. Avdi, you said something in the last segment that I really liked where you talked about editing your show to the point where it almost comes across looking like a superhuman typing. I noticed when I watch Ruby Tapas that I'm not focusing on, gosh, I wish I could type that fast. I'm too busy processing how clean the code is and, and learning the lesson that you're actually trying to teach. And I really like that. I wonder sometimes if there's a good way to neutralize imposter syndrome by reminding ourselves that we are comparing our own behind the scenes footage with somebody else's highlight reel. And you put in a lot of post-production effort to make sure that the topists don't have a lot of the cruft left, that it's all just you know, cleanly presented. How does that work? I, I think that's a great point. You know, I think you're absolutely right that a lot of times, you know, what we're watching in the world around us when we're watching coworkers and people we look up to and stuff like that, we're watching a performance. You know, we're watching something that somebody has practiced for and they've, you know, considered and honed. And you definitely see that in microcosm in my show. I mean, you know, I deliberately put it all way over at one end of the spectrum of polished and produced because I try to make it so short and sweet and to the point. Um, you know, I... So here's a funny thing that happened on our way to the podcast. We were going to talk to Avdi about, I don't know, something or another. And then uh, suddenly there was a baby crying in the other room. And Avdi, being a good father, had to go and see what was going on. So in the meantime, we took a few minutes to talk to our new panelist, Astrid County. And we'll let her uh, tell her own story. Tell us what your background is like pre-developer. I started out thinking that I was going to be a doctor. So I went to school uh, with this intention of going to medical school. And then when I was going through the classes, I wasn't all that happy because it was like, you know, natural sciences, they just tell you like, this is what it is. And that was kind of annoying to me because I was like, I came to school to learn, not for you to tell me things. And so I started to doubt if that was the right path, but I wasn't sure what the right path was, but I was a psychology major. And so I was thinking, okay, I'll do social sciences I'll do like research and stuff. I'll be happy with that. And um, after I finished, I started working and I was working at this data company that's in oil and gas. So they service the oil and gas companies. And like the first job I had, they were like, okay, you need to be able to like run this database. And I was like, okay, what's a database? And they're like, don't worry about it. We're just going to show you how to run this query and it'll be fine. And I was like, okay. And so I started just running queries and access, not really knowing what I was doing. And at the time, you could like change the data in the access data sheet, which was really bad, I found out later. Because they were like, oh, if you need to update something, just type it in the cell. And I was like, really? Because it seems like that shouldn't be the case. And so as like their IT got better, I was learning more about how it actually worked, like what the right things were supposed to be in the first place. And so I started to have positions where I was building databases and like writing my own queries and making reports. And it really just came from the fact that my bosses kept asking me the same questions over and over. And they were like, hey, when is this going to be back? And when is this ready? And so I just started to make reports and just give them the report because I was tired of answering the same questions, which means that I started making like my own queries 
And they didn't realize that I was doing that at first. And then they were like, oh, you seem to like this. So we're going to send you to a class. And I was like, okay. And so I kept learning like a little bit more and a little bit more while I was going to graduate school. And I was going to graduate school for anthropology because I originally planned to do like medical research that was culturally relevant. And I was going to like go work at a hospital or something after that. And what I ended up doing was taking like what I was learning and school and trying to make my work life better because they just, it was a data company. So all they cared about was the numbers, but I was actually managing people. And I was like, I can't get better stuff out of people just telling them to push numbers. And so I started to make like my own plans about how I was going to help my staff actually learn new things and get better at what they were doing. And so it kept kind of like merging together. And then I got to this one position where I was working as a data analyst supervisor and we were making our own tools. And I was working with another web developer who was building us an interface where we had a Mongo database, which I was like, what is a Mongo database? Because I was all into databases at this point. And he was telling me like, well, it's actually like a document-based database. I was like, what does that mean? And so he would kind of talk with me and teach me some things. And I was helping to like build out the interface to make it useful and relevant to us. And so after that, I was like, okay, I should really think about this whole software development thing. Because I did not realize that like writing my own SQL was actually coding. Because nobody told me that. I was just like, oh, it's just like writing English and it does stuff. And I didn't know that that was actually what programming is until <laughs> later. I got a job at another company where everybody thought that Excel was like the most high tech programming ever. And that was super scary to me because I was like, no, I need a, I need a SQL database. And they're like, what are you talking about? You can just make an Excel spreadsheet. I was like, no, I cannot make an Excel spreadsheet. And after like frustration with trying to build things and, and then being told, because they kept telling me, well, you're on the business side of the company. You know, you don't build things like you go talk to another business analyst who will then take your requirements. And I was like, I don't need that. If you could just give me my ODBC connection, I would be good. And I can just do what I need to do. And that really pissed me off. So I was like, screw this. I'm going to go learn how to build my own stuff because I'm tired of, tell of people putting like walls in my way. And so that's when I left and I went to the Iron Yard and learned how to program in Ruby. And then I've been like in this process of trying to figure out how to use my whole like social science background, which I really still love a lot and try to promote uh, with software because it's just, I feel like in some cases, like on the other side of it, people get so into technology for technology's sake and they just like want to build this little cool thing, but it doesn't help anybody. It's just another way for them to like show how cool they are. And at the same time, I see like regular everyday problems that are not getting better. Like, I still feel like, why is it that I don't know where stuff is in a grocery store I've never been to? Like, why is there not a really good way to tell me where this cheese is? Like, this is a real issue. <laughs> and if I, have, I mean, it's true, right? So if I had like zero time and I have like children pulling at me, like, why should I have to wander the halls of a grocery store when everybody has to eat? But yet somebody has figured out like a solution to this obscure, like really technical problem and nobody's working on like regular people problems. So I kind of want to figure out how to do that. But I still got to like learn how to be like, I still have to learn all the stuff I don't know. So that's what I'm kind of doing now. Oh, no, oh, oh, no, 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 no. You never learn all the stuff you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Not if you had a hundred lifetimes. That for me, listening to your uh, Ruby Newbie video, uh, mm -hmm. that for me was the thing that really caught my attention was that uh, we wanted somebody to represent the sort of the voice of the newbie. But 
I really wanted to make sure that we had somebody who brought a bunch of their own really rich, interesting background with it so that it wasn't just like, hello, I am a squeaky clean junior developer. I feel like a, a weird version of a junior developer because I'm junior in only some senses. Whereas like in other ways, I'm probably more senior, like when it comes to running projects and being over teams, like I can do that really easily. But then when it's the technical stuff, I have to learn a lot. So it's it's an interesting position to be in because I feel like it helps me be a better learner to know that I don't know everything and that I can't really lead without learning from the people around me. I've never met a junior that wasn't senior, like excessively senior in some area of life that I knew nothing about. Oh, really? I went out to uh, G school uh, a couple of years ago and did like a guest, you know, teaching lecture day on job hunting and like how to write resumes. And one of the students came up, she sat down, we were, we were talking back and forth and she was really worried that she wouldn't have anything in her resume that she could present. And I'm like, well, let me take a look through here. And I get to the education part and it's half a page and she's <laughs> got a juris doctorate. And I'm like, <laughs> Does, does, this is JD. Maybe you should lead with that. <laughs> she's like, yeah, but I mean, you can't use. She's actually, I've passed the the bar here in Colorado, but you can't huh. you can't get a programming job as a lawyer. And I'm like, the heck, you can't. <laughs> like, you need to lead with that and say, I'm the junior programmer who knows what a HIPAA violation looks like or what you know what the legal implications of this code are, and. Yeah. You, when you find that, like Astrid, I loved your Ruby Newbie video where you said, I've got a degree in anthropology. And I'm like, yes, an interesting human. <laughs> yeah, you have both the beginner's perspective on the technology and also a lot of wisdom. Oh, that's great. I never think of myself as having wisdom. I always think Lots of it of more like, like in a way, anthropology is like the inverse of what I learned with technology because in anthropology you learn about a lot of things and then you try to scope it down to something small and then with technology you usually start out with something small and try to start learning about all these other things but one of the things that I think helped is that with anthropology you learn that just because you do things a certain way doesn't mean that what you do is right and you have to be open to the fact that there is this whole other group of people who might be doing something that you think is crazy, but there is some logic to it. You have to back away and try to understand them before you judge them. And I think that that has helped me a lot with technology because I tend not to be one of those people who's like, this is awesome and this is not awesome and you should be doing this and not that because I just would rather understand like, okay, why did you pick this before we start talking about like what you did wrong? Can we like clone you and fill the industry with you? <laughs> I would love, I, I try to do that with, uh, cause I coach at Rails Girls and I love doing that because I always meet these young women usually who are like, I'm totally terrified of this. I just came because uh, my, my roommate wanted me to come with her and I don't know if I can do anything. I'm like, okay, it's going to be fine. We're just going to write some words together and you're going to be really happy at the end because you will have made something. And then almost inevitably, by the time we get to the end of it, they're super excited and they're like, oh my gosh, I never thought I could do this because people have made it seem like so magical and esoteric and crazy. And I try to get them to be a little more like, stop judging yourself before you even do this because we are going to have fun. Like, don't worry. It's going to be okay. You, no one's going to look at your, like your Twitter clone and be like, well, my Twitter clone is better than yours because everybody here 
doesn't know anything. So I think that kind of helps like having those little environments because I've seen some of those people afterwards and they may not be like doing software or programming, but they feel so much more comfortable being able to talk to people who do because they feel like, yeah. okay, you know, I understand what MVC is. Like I've put something on Heroku. I, I kind of get what you're doing. And I think that's really a lot more helpful than, you know, trying to make everybody into developers. Cause I'm kind of against when people say that, I just think, it's nice to have everybody, you know, speak similar languages, but they don't all have to do the same thing. It's like a matter of literacy, basically, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. It's like uh, the theory behind a broad liberal arts education, right? You get exposed to a bunch of different things that may change the way you think, and you don't ever have to do any or all of them, but uh, at least you've had that exposure and you know there's something out there. Yeah, totally. So you don't feel like you can't participate, because I think that's the worst thing. Yeah. Do you want me to, like, close up what I was saying to David? Yeah. Do you remember right, it? Sure. Great. <laughs> um, Amazing. We're like, you were talking? You know, what I do is very much a, a performance, and I view it as a performance. You know, I, I have guidelines down to the level of how to perform while manipulating the cursor on the screen in order to draw the, the viewer's attention to, to the right place and not the wrong place. But, uh, you know, there's a, a huge amount that goes on behind the scenes that you don't see. There's a huge mess that goes on behind the scenes. If you're if you could see this on video, you would be seeing the mess in my office. And a, a really good and timely example of this is another thing that you're not seeing or hearing is the fact that uh, I just had to take a 15-minute break because um, there was a baby screaming next door. And I had to deal with that. That's the stuff that's really going on, you know, behind the performance. And everything you see, you know, is somebody else's performance. Just for our listeners' benefit, Abdi, when you said next door, you you mean in the next room. Yeah, the you, next You're not actually like the neighborhood baby quiet <laughs> yeah in the next room where i don't have a, a there's no door between uh my office and and the kids room you know yeah. just another example of those things it's like you know no i'm not in the model house here this yeah. is the real world and, and it's messy sam you said in the back channel you can have it all that's the takeaway and the downside of the good side is that when you have it all you also have it all <laughs> and all of it yeah. has you yes. right <laughs> yeah <laughs> Abdi, um, I'm thinking about what you're talking about in terms of performance and thinking about that in terms of people who insist on doing live coding as part of their conference talk, which in my I've seen it done well once, and that was Sandy Metz. And most of the time, it seems to involve an auditorium full of people saying, you forgot the period, line 51, <laughs> you forgot the period. <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I don't have the guts to do live coding. I'm not gonna say it's good or bad i just i don't have the guts to do it on a stage i should yeah say. the one time i i pretended to do it i actually had screen recordings and um i stepped away while the typing was happening just to say like this really is not me <laughs> <laughs> it's not My me now. favorite is to demo code that modifies code so it's technically live coding but really i'm just typing at the command line <laughs> i feel like I, I met someone once who had come up with a little program or a, a, an editor customization where they could pre-record exactly what the editor was going to type, but then it wouldn't actually type the next character in the sequence until they hit a key, any key, any key <laughs> nice. at all. You know, and so then they would just they would cue this up, and then they would just be like bang, 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 bang. <laughs> that is brilliant. <laughs> Which all gets to the point of you could call it an abstraction of what we do to make this information flow well hides a lot of. Uh, mess behind the scenes. 
Yeah, there's also uh, a lot more that goes into Ruby Tapas that's not even about the code itself. Uh, one of the things that um, I have always really appreciated about uh, Ruby Tapas is that you provide your, it's not a transcript, but it's your your working script uh, along with the show itself. And uh, as as somebody with ADD, I find it really, really difficult to sit still for video, even if it's Ruby Tapas length. And so I just uh, I wanted to thank you for making the scripts available so that I can read them at my own pace. And I uh, wonder if there's anything else that I haven't even noticed about that. Well, you know, first of all, you're welcome. You know, I'm, I'm very glad to be able to provide that. And like you said, it is the script. It's not a transcript. Part of making this into a performance is the fact that I compose these things. You know, I draft them out as as if they were blog posts, only more conversational. I go through all the code first to make sure it works. And I figure out how I want to talk about it, what sounds natural and what doesn't and stuff like that. It begins weeks, weeks in advance of the point where I cut the actual video, the actual final video, let alone the point where I, I schedule it to, to be published. There's research and then there's drafting and then there's a little bit of parallelization once there's a draft because I can have my, my screen typist do the typing while I'm also you know do, recording the voiceover. And then there's editing and there's definitely a lot that goes on behind the scenes. So, yeah, we uh, we had some uh, listener questions. And uh, just as a reminder, uh, if you want to support us on Patreon, we will invite you into our uh, supporter only Slack room. So we had a couple of listener questions for you this week. Darren Wilson asks, what non Ruby technologies have you been exploring lately? These days, I try to make some time every day to study. And the technology that I'm studying lately is PHP. It's this uh, obscure new programming language. <laughs> what does PHP stand for? I don't even know anymore. It's it used to be. <laughs> didn't like, it used to be like personal homepage or something? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, Abdi, as you know, PHP has a very bad reputation among Rubyists. There's sort of a snobbery toward PHP, and I find that really annoying because PHP is a great language for people who are getting started. They have their first WordPress site. They want to customize it. And then that's like a gateway into programming. How are you finding PHP as someone who's already an experienced programmer, though? Okay, so I'm at an interesting point in my programming career. It's kind of a very blessed point. I think of it as the um, the comb-over stage of my programming career. Um, <laughs> so, you know, imagine, imagine that you are a young and hip, uh, you know, 20-something, early 20-something at your favorite coffee shop. And you look over and at this other table, there's this guy who's wearing khaki cargo shorts with black knee socks and sandals. And he's got a comb over and bad glasses. And he just seems generally awkward. And part of like the front part of your mind is like, wow, that guy's not cool. I'm cooler than that guy. Um, but then there's this little voice in the back of your head that's like, wow, that guy doesn't even care. Like, He's not worried about any of this stuff. I wonder what it's like to be that guy. So <laughs> I feel like I'm reaching the, the comb over stage of, of my programming <laughs> career where where I've finally like gotten past a lot of the sense that I needed to feel contempt for other technologies and programming languages and and things like that. And I can just sort of move on to not giving a crap. And it's nice. So. Yeah. How am I finding it? I don't care how I'm finding it. What I'm finding is that it's a Turing complete programming language. And what's interesting about it is the ecosystem that's built up around it, particularly what interests me right now is the and what got has me getting into it is the the WordPress ecosystem, which I've used WordPress for blogging for many, many years. But I, I wasn't really serious about it until I kind of moved my whole business over to it. And it really is. a It's a remarkable ecosystem. Um, it's filled with programmers 
who are not as obsessed with niceties of syntax or like cleverness of syntax and stuff like that as as we tend to be in say the ruby community and and some other programming language communities but it's an ecosystem where it feels like a lot of people the people who are programming now came in from the business side they came in from they had something that they needed to sell or they needed had something that they needed to market they had a family business or something like that and wordpress was there for them and then they slowly started you know learning to code for it and one of the things I find really interesting about this ecosystem is that a lot of people in it are actually like functional at business and they're functional at uh, making what they do pay, which to me is incredibly important because it's great, you know, when you are like young and you have no attachments and you have nobody depending on you and, you know, you can do the whole startup thing or, or whatever. And it doesn't matter whether the stuff that you do pays off. But a lot of folks aren't in that situation. A lot of folks eventually move out of that situation. A lot of people don't even start in that situation where they've just got time on their hands and it doesn't matter if, you know, nothing comes of what they're working on. And it's cool to see people that know how not only how to code, but, you know, also how to make it support them. Um, you see stuff like the amazing WordPress plugins community where all these plugins are GPL'd, you know, they're free software, but everybody also sells their own pro version, which invo may involve support or may involve like an upgrade add on to it, you know, and they're able to make a living that way or they're, they're able to make part of a living that way, which means they can keep hacking on it without, you know, those big breaks that you often see in open source projects where somebody just didn't have the time. And that's really cool. So it's it's a different culture. You know, I, I compare that to, you know, the, the Ruby culture that I spend a lot of time in. And I can think of like one project that follows that model. There's Mike Perham's sidekick. Um, there might be a few others, but it's very rare. And it's kind of strange how big the dichotomy is. So the PHP community has found a way to make their open source project sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. That's really what it seems like. I wonder if there's something about the demographics. I know that a lot of Rubyists tend to work in startups using Rails. I wonder if the PHP community is more diverse in that way. I honestly don't know. Just a wacky hypothesis. Avi, have you participated in any events in the PHP community? Have you like gone to conferences or gone to meetups or anything like that? Not yet. I've started to get a, a tiny bit um, involved in, in like a, a, a forum or two or a Slack but I haven't gotten out to the conferences yet. But I think I, at some point I probably will. That's a really interesting point. I, it's something I didn't really consider, though I spent a lot of time kind of working within that community as it relates to like ad agency sort of stuff. Like that's kind of what my background was in, sports and entertainment. And so uh, a lot of their stuff was kind of, I, I don't say this uh, in a negative way, but hey, how can we extend WordPress to do something that it's not necessarily meant to do? You know, and coming up with all sorts of like really novel, you know, sort of things. But I hadn't really considered that, but I would agree with that statement. Without a doubt, you know, there's a lot of really great conferences around WordPress and, and people who are finding ways to monetize those projects in ways that maybe the Ruby community hasn't. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't feel like I've dove in enough to say much that's authoritative about it. But these are, you know, some of my opening impressions. Are just that you know people there's there's a higher level of business competence and thinking and just thinking more about like what is the life goal that this thing serves rather than than I am writing this code because code is cool. So like Astrid talked about building something useful as opposed to building something clever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would like to point out that the PHP community 
although looked down upon by Ruby, has some things that the Ruby community does not. They have a governing body, and they have a very healthy discussion that's been going on for some time now about whether to adopt a community code of conduct. And these are things that I think the Ruby community could learn from the PHP community if we could finish looking down our noses at them. I would say that like as a newer programmer, I never quite understand why there's contempt towards PHP because there is a lot of demand for PHP developers. So it seems like if you're you know, new to programming, this is something that would be a good skill to pick up because um, it may not be like the hot, flashy thing, but there's a lot of legacy code out there that's in PHP that different even small businesses or individuals or sometimes even larger businesses need developers for. So I think it's a good thing to try to build up some skills that you can use in different ways. And it seems like PHP is a good way to do that. Yeah, we have no PHP boot camps. That's true. I don't know. That's so oh. weird. Wow, the culture of PHP is that you don't need them. <laughs> the barriers to entry are quite low. It's nice. Less than question mark PHP and start typing, and that's your boot camp. All right. Our second listener question this morning comes from Lucas Doman, who asks, should a screencast series like Ruby Tapas also go beyond code? Talk about topics like dealing with frustration when programming, for example. I don't know. Should it? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm the one to answer that question. Do you get feedback from listeners, Avdi, asking for certain topics? And is that one you would entertain? Yeah, I totally get feedback. I invite it and I get I get comments and I, I have the site has a forum now. So I get su- suggestions there and an email and stuff like that. It's not something that that particular topic, I don't think is one that I recall coming up before. I could be mistaken. But uh, it's, you know, it's certainly something that I would think about covering. I mean, it's the kind of thing that, that a lot of times people cover in like a conference talk rather than a screencast series. But if I had a good angle on it that, that was better than just, you know, frustration happens and going on, on about that for five minutes, um, I would definitely do an episode. It's an interesting question to me because, you know, it's right there in the name is Ruby Tapas. And so I, I wonder if you feel constrained to only talk about Ruby, whereas I think a lot of the stuff about like dealing with frustration or some of the other interpersonal issues that come up with code, those can feel a lot more like what I've heard called second shift work, stuff that you do in addition to your paying job. Right. It's also stuff that, you know, we get into areas where I feel more incompetent than usual to cover. Um, you know, there's stuff that I can say about my own life, but beyond that, and I guess that's true of, I guess, code as well. You know, I can tell you what I've done, but beyond that, I don't really have a lot of authority. But I guess what it is, is is you get into an area where it's like, oh gosh, I don't want to give somebody advice about, you know, how to handle their day that makes them have a really bad day, you know, let alone a whole week of bad days or something. Um, it's scary, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff is a little bit scary to cover. When, when you have a screencast series like this that people subscribe to, you are implicitly putting yourself in, in a place of authority, whether whether you acknowledge it or not, you know, just the same as when you're on a stage or on a podcast for that matter. You know, I get really nervous about messing up in that kind of situation. I've been on a podcast with you for a few years now, and I've gone to some conferences with you and sat next to you. And I can attest to the listeners that you are one of the most humble down to the earth people and that you do genuinely get stage fright. I I, I was very amused because schadenfreude ist der bestenfreude. But um, <laughs> I, I was I loved being at Lone Star RubyConf. And I mean, you were shaking. You were visibly shaking. And you you soldiered on. You did fantastic. 
And I love the fact that we live in a world where you can just start broadcasting information, just teach what you know, teach what you know, teach what you know. You don't have to assume this mantle of, you know, I am the all-knowing guru, come sit at my feet and learn. You're just going to say, hey, I'm going to teach what I know. And you are fantastic at this. How do you negotiate your own stage fright and imposter syndrome in the face of knowing that people need to hear what you have to say? Because we do consider you an authority. You know, I'm getting imposter syndrome about figuring out how to talk about this, to be honest, how to even say something useful about this, because it gets into an area of, of like, I don't know how I do this. I just sort of do, you know, and, and it's it's scary and it's difficult. And my personal experience is probably different from other people, you know, the same as other people's experience and different from different people's experience. You know, for me, I sort of bounce around between the heights of ego and and yeah, I got this. And the depths of, oh, God, you know, I don't know a thing that I'm talking about. I don't even have that sense that de- people definitely need to hear what I'm what I have to say. I just I have to I really have to count on feedback. And it's terrifying because, like, I'll hear one negative thing and it'll crush me for a week. And I'm just incredibly lucky that for whatever reason, I don't hear a lot of negative stuff. And I, I don't know why that is, but I'm extraordinarily grateful because I, I don't think I'd survive. And I rely a lot on the really nice things that people say, you know, periodically, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see me say people send me the nicest emails. Um, and that's usually when somebody sent me a really nice email and it, it made my day. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm not giving you anything useful on this question. I have been through many, many instances of, like you say, shaking with stage fright. And I feel like I've coasted on people saying it's OK. You did OK. Um, Lofty, that's incredibly useful. I mean, you just said. I don't know how I would deal with it if I got a lot of negative feedback. I've been fortunate that I don't get a lot of negative feedback. That is encouraging in the sense that some of our listeners, and probably some of us, do get negative feedback frequently, and not for good reasons, but just because they're at a place of work that doesn't value being kind to each other, or they're not a white male with trademark hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that is incredibly discouraging. And you just said that even you might not be doing this if you got a lot of negative feedback. And it it just shows what that kind of impact is, that whenever we discourage someone or put them down or denigrate them or their code or their programming language, we're eliminating people. Yeah. 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 I want to say one or two things to that. One is, for some reason, programming can be an incredibly judgmental culture. And environments can be really poisonous. Um, I've been privileged enough, um, and I use that word very deliberately, that I've been able to sort of skip out of some places that had crappy cultures. But, you know, just recently I saw another reiteration of a meme that I see pretty frequently in programming, which is you should get your ego out of your programming. Um, You should not involve your ego. You know, it should be egoless code. Um, You shouldn't feel like ownership of your code or possessiveness or attachment to it. And I think this is an incredibly damaging idea. Uh, it's an incredibly hurtful idea. Because yeah. uh, now here's the thing. A lot of people are going to be like, what? What? We should be egotistical in our coding? No, I'm not saying that. You know, I, I've casually studied some Buddhist philosophy. I've benefited hugely from the concepts of non-attachment and of escaping the ego. I think it's it's incredibly useful stuff. But here's the thing. You can't tell somebody else to get their ego out of out of the way. It <laughs> doesn't work. You can't do that. I can say I need to work on my ego. I need to release my attachments. You can't say you need to release your attachments because it's like working with children and saying, no, you can't have the toy. Well, now they want the toy like a thousand times more. Fundamentally, the way people work, you can't go out there and say, everybody, put down your egos. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think when you have, for for instance, environments where people are are saying, well, you did this, this, this and this wrong. And you have a hurt response, react, mental reaction to that. And then they say, oh, you need to put down your ego. I think yeah, the problem yes. comes down to like the fact that the ideal programmer in a lot of people's minds is an emotionless robot. Mr. Spock. That is just producing mm-hmm. intellectual value and has no emotional response to things, has nothing that differentiates them from the next smart person. And that excludes people because like you're not allowed to bring your whole self to the work that you're doing. Yeah, if if I were programming in an egoless manager, my code would be shit because I wouldn't care about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, for better or for worse, we are creators just as much as as and you know anybody who makes anything. And just as the writer, you know, somebody writes a novel and they know that that's going to be the thing that people remember them by, that's going to be the change that they create in the world that lasts past their own physical life. We have the same thing going on with code. I wrote code on on air traffic control systems for a while. And, you know, for a while there, there were airports that I could fly into that I knew that my code was was running, you know, on the approach. And I am not going to for a minute going to say that I don't feel a little bit proud of that, you know, that that's not a little bit of a part of me and that, that that I'm not a little bit of a part of that code. These are the changes that we put out into the world that may persist beyond our own lives. So, yeah, there's going to be a little attachment there. You're not going to get away from that. And Larry Wall actually says that the three virtues of a good programmer are laziness and patience and hubris. So pride is important because, like Jessica said, that makes you write better code. Yeah. Yeah. But I I think it's also important for us to find a way to balance that as well so that we can accept the fault in what we've created and the fact that we are not perfect creators. I was just reading something interesting. I think it was a link that was on Hacker News about bias that pops up in systems. You know, I, I don't know. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately in, you know, what is the effect that I have on other people as well? So, you know, I, I don't know, you know, if anyone has any advice on, on that. I, I think it's, you know, um, what we're stating is, yes, it's important, but at the exact same time, like, you don't want to kind of build up this you know, altar of pride and ego and, you know, you're unable to reconcile that your actions, right, have an effect, you know, on the people who are utilizing those systems or listening to uh, a podcast or, you know, a screencast or so on and so forth, you know what I mean? I, I think you're absolutely right, Jay. And and particularly the examples that you're citing of bias that creeps into systems. Karina Zona has these great talks that she does about the bias that creeps into schemas and the bias that creeps into algorithms, which programmers love to talk about this crazy idea that algorithms are are inherently unbiased, which is lunacy. And see, there's there's my bias showing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think one of the places to find sort of a, you know, to make these ideas meet is maybe... The idea that, yeah, we're going to feel attachment to the code we write. We're going to feel a little defensive about the code we write. We're going to feel a little bit like it's a, it's a part of us. You know, I don't think most programmers go out there intending to write bad code. I don't think they go out there intending to write code that's not fit to purpose. But something that's sort of universally true is that we all go out there with limited information. You know, we all go out there not fully understanding the domain that we're we're working with, not fully understanding the implications of the decisions that we make, the parts that we put in, and also perhaps more importantly, the parts that we leave out. We don't have all the information. And so, yeah, you know, my code is broken. I didn't want to make it broken. I didn't intend to make it broken. Um, I didn't intend for it to hurt anyone with its brokenness. But these things happen anyway. And, you know, they're because 
a lot of the time it's just because we are in, you know, not in possession of universal knowledge. Um, and I think if we, we, you know, when we realize that it helps us have a little bit of compassion, I hope for how these things happen. I think it also has something to do with just trusting other humans. I think we, we seem to have a hard time with that. Like it's okay that somebody may have made a mistake. It doesn't mean that they're always going to do something wrong, but it doesn't also mean that they don't have anything to offer. Um, it seems like this is something that's come up more recently because I was listening to somebody talking about the movie that's going to come out about the, the women who are working with NASA in the fifties. And one of the interesting things I heard was one of the astronauts said that they had just gotten a new computer and the computer was being used to calculate the trajectory they were going to take to land on the moon. And he said that he was not going to get into the space shuttle until the the woman that was the computer before had verified that the computer was correct. And that's like the opposite thinking that we have now, because now we don't trust humans. We trust machines, but we forget that it's humans that are programming the machines. And we don't think about the relationship back to having that trust with another person, because it's not like we do anything alone. And I think that if maybe there's a little more highlighting of the fact that people need each other and it's not just I'm going to program this thing and it's going to be perfect all the time. And if it's not, then you throw the person away. Then some of that you know, distrust and some of the contempt for people's mistakes might start to go away. Yeah, I, I have very little to add to that. That's, I think, <laughs> yes, what you said. <laughs> Including for our own mistakes. You know. I mean, yes, we're attached <laughs> to our code, but but we're imperfect and our code is imperfect and the, we still have stuff to learn. Yeah. I mean, in a way, code is just a penumbra around humans. It is, it yeah. is this extension of ourselves that reaches out into the world and affects things a little bit beyond what we can reach ourselves. But it all comes back to us. I think that's a wonderful place for us to start wrapping up. Last time we did this really cool thing where we uh, we all shared one takeaway from the episode. And uh, I think I'd like to do that again. Uh, but first, I do want to remind you that uh, we are currently only supported by our listeners and uh, some of our panelists. Uh, if you are somebody or if you know of somebody that we should talk to about uh, company sponsorship opportunities, uh, we'd like you to get in touch with our show manager and producer, Mandy, at mandy at greaterthancode.com. Uh, our goal is to bring you quality shows as frequently as we can, but uh, we do need some help with that. If you would like to see a little bit of what goes into our editing process and maybe understand why we're asking for money, go take a look at our blog post, a letter from the editor, and uh, check it out on our site. So yeah, I think I'll start off with the takeaways. I was thinking as you were talking about taking your ego of the out of code that uh, I was really lucky early on in my career to have a mentor who helped me learn how to sort of detach from that and to consider the code in terms of like what it was doing and not get super upset when we talked about how it could be better. Uh, and I was realizing, uh, especially when uh, Coraline, when you brought up hubris, that there's sort of this ego judo that you can do where you can use your ego and your attachment to the code, but make it not about yourself uh, and instead try to focus on what your code is bringing to other people. And maybe that can help you uh, try to figure out how to make it better without uh, getting stuck. Yeah. And you also said something that I'm really glad you said because I forgot to say it, which is, no, you can't tell people to put their ego down. But what you can do is model it. And, and you're, you're talking about your yeah. mentor modeling that. And that's really all we can do. And I thank you so much for uh, for bringing that up. I like the fact that and this is like one of the goals that I have for the show, at least that 
we got to see the person behind Ruby Tapas as a person with vulnerability, as a person mm -hmm. with human flaws and human characteristics and anxieties and um, weaknesses. And babies. And babies. And we got to see the, I think we got a glimpse into the whole person behind a public persona, which I think should be inspiring to people and should be really interesting to people to know that our heroes and Abdi, you are a Ruby hero. Our heroes are, are living human beings and full people with a full spectrum of characteristics and are not very different from the rest of us. I think that's, that's my main takeaway. So my main takeaway is what Coraline said. And then also how important it is to bring your whole self to something so that you're not just perceived as a robot or you're not just you know in this one little corner of the world trying to do something small, that you are a whole person and that what you do affects other people. So you don't forget that as well when you're working. Building Jessica. on that, my takeaway is that what we show matters. In the case of a screencast or a conference talk or this podcast, the editing and the curation and getting it just right matters because it uses our listeners' time well. But in our work, when we're working with people as people, it matters that we show that we're not perfect. Like what Sam and Abdi said about we can't tell people to pull out their ego, but we can model it. Showing that matters. Showing people that, yeah, we have children and sometimes they interrupt our conference call and that's okay. That's life. That matters. So there's a time and a place for looking really good. And there's a time and a place for just being who you are. <laughs> yeah. Nice. We need to put that on a t-shirt with the logo. <laughs> you know, I think what I got out of this too, just a, a small bit that was important. And I think that sometimes it's a part of imposter syndrome, right? We kind of build up these ghosts and kind of for ourselves. And I think that we all, it helps for us to recognize that with things that are produced and things that we see until we actually sit down with someone and interact with them, that we're not necessarily seeing them for who they truly are. And we can utilize that, right? We can do this whole comparison back and forth with, oh, you know, I'm not as fast as this person. I'm not as smart as this person. I'm not this. I'm not that. Um, and I think that if we recognize that a lot of other people have the same fears that we do, right? And they're kind of working through the same sort of thing and probably, you know, also going through that same sort of comparison in, in their heads that we can then relax, you know, and say that at the end of the day, we kind of all want the the exact same liberty, right? We want the exact same freedoms. We have the exact same wishes for ourselves and family members. And I think that will help us to relate and to also to help help us kind of calm ourselves, you know, when we're feeling panicked, you know, or we're feeling less. I think for me, a great takeaway, and I hope maybe some of our listeners will consider taking this away as uh, maybe as a challenge for them, is that Avdi did not start doing Ruby Tapas because he was an authority. He became an authority because he was doing Ruby Tapas. We of us on the, the podcast did not start podcasting because we were famous know-it-alls. We became famous know-it-alls because we were podcasting. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, that's great. And that's all well and good for these people that have achieved all this stuff. Don't. We did not start from that place. Put your ideas out there. Get them in, you know, in front of other people and you will suddenly discover that that's how you manufacture authority. And then write emails to the nice people who host this podcast to tell them that they're doing a great job because uh, that's, what, that's what keeps folks going. I got into speaking because somebody told me, oh, you don't have to be an expert. You just have to know enough to talk for an hour. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, well, I can learn that much. I'm good at learning. <laughs> <laughs>
Avdi, did you have any uh, takeaways from this? Any final thoughts? I spent a lot of time talking on this episode, but uh, the one thing that I did did learn is that there is a movie coming out about the women programmers at NASA. So now I'm excited about that. Thank you. Thank you for that, Astrid. No problem. It's <laughs> called Hidden Figures. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much, panelists. This has been a really wonderful conversation to share with you all. And uh, thank you, listeners. We'll come back at you next week. It's a wrap, everybody. 